continuing in this series that we started last week called Going Places. And the foundation of this entire series is built upon this conviction that God has a plan for every person's life. He has a purpose for your life. You weren't here. You didn't arrive here by accident or randomly, but there is a unique purpose that God hopes that you would fulfill throughout the course of your life. And so we're excited that we get to talk about that a little bit over the course of these next four weeks. And really the journey of faith that we've sort of we've been describing it as the journey of faith is all about God's plan unfolding in our lives. The journey of faith is all about God's plan unfolding in our life. And what I love about journeys is that most journeys have these milestones along the way so that you know that you're making progress. So, for example, if you have children, when you have small children, you are looking for these strategic, significant milestones to help you know that they are developing along the right and normal path. At some point, you expect that they'll be crawling. At some point, you expect that perhaps they'll be walking and talking and then someday feeding themselves. And I always thought after we had our first two children, I always thought it would be nice if God would have allowed for the first milestone to be sleeping through the night. But that is not the case in in a lot of children's development. Uh, It wasn't for us. So, um, But I love milestones because milestones help you to know that progress is being made. And I think that that is especially true when it comes to faith. And so last week, we began this conversation to expose us to some of the milestones of faith because a lot of us have entered into this faith family, into this spiritual life, but sometimes we have done so without a framework to understand where we're at and where we're going. And so that's the big idea of this entire series is that God has a plan for your life and we want to help you get to where you're trying to go. And so I'm going to share with you sort of this four-part plan of spiritual development that I think that God has laid out and, and sort of gives us a pathway for growth and where we're trying to go when we talk about spiritual maturity. And so this week, we're going to talk about being marked by faith. We're going to talk about being marked by faith. I think that there's a graph. Perhaps there is. Perhaps there is not in the back. There we go. Marked by faith. So this is really the first milestone of faith is being marked by faith. And so today we're going to talk about salvation and baptism and what that has to do with our spiritual development. Secondly, next week we're going to talk about what it means to be merged to a community. And in my opinion, and what I see in the New Testament, a lot of other people see, is that in community is where you see some of the most significant parts of your spiritual development taking place. And so we're going to talk about the significance of being merged to a community. In week three, we're going to talk about being made for impact. And that means that God has uniquely created us to make a unique contribution to the mission of God on this earth. And we want to help you discover your wiring and your calling in this process. And then finally, multiplying for life or multiply for life. And this really sort of is the end game when we talk about our faith development is that we reach spiritual maturity when we are reproducing it in others what God has produced in us, where we are developing others in the way that God has developed us. And so reproduction is sort of the end game of spiritual development. And we know that we have reached some level of spiritual maturity when we are multiplying for life. And so today we're going to be reading out of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. If you have your phone, feel free to use your phone. But the book of Acts is located in the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. And the New Testament primarily deals with the life of Jesus 
in the development of the early church. And so the life of Jesus is explained in the four gospel accounts, these many biographies at the front end of the New Testament. And then you have the rest of the New Testament giving a description of the development and the growth of the early church as we know it in the first century. And so the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. Luke was a physician. And he wrote the book of Acts to help people understand how and why the church grew in the way that it did. Now, you have to understand why this would be significant to people uh, in Luke's day and age, because the people in the New Testament weren't the only ones that were claiming to have a divine message, but they were the only ones to experience the type of growth in that organization compared to any of the other organizations that were claiming to have a divine message. And so today we're going to look in the book of Acts, and we're going to look on the back end of one of the greatest TED Talks ever given in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with what a TED Talk is, TED Talks are like these short 15-minute talks that uh, are really these palatable bites of information. But this is a really short message that the Apostle Peter gives in the New Testament, and so it's like a TED Talk. And the interesting thing about this message is that it is filled with tension. It is filled with a sense of conflict because Peter is saying something to a crowd of people that he assumes they are opposed to. But one of the significant things about this speech and this talk that Peter gives is it highlights the first milestone of faith. And so we're going to pick up at the very last line of the speech that Peter gives. He says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this man, Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. I don't know about you, but I've read the content of this speech. But when you just listen to that last thought in this speech, you can sort of imagine the level of emotion that filled the content before it. But that was the weight of what Peter was talking about. He was essentially making the case that the man who God anointed, the man who God appointed, you rejected. And so in other words, what Peter is telling this crowd on this day is he's saying, you are guilty of murder. You were pro there were probably people in the crowd that he was speaking to that day that were also in the same crowd when Jesus was being held on trial and they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And so Peter's speaking to this group of people and he's saying, that the man who God appointed, you've rejected. God's chosen person, you denied. And it's interesting to think about the way that these people respond. In verse 37, it tells us, it says, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? You can imagine the way that these people may have felt, but for some reason, for whatever reason, Peter's communication on that morning seemed to have effectively connected with this crowd because it said that their hearts were pierced by this message. That means that whatever Peter was saying resonated with who they are. And I sort of imagine that there was a sense inside of them that they knew that they had done something wrong, but when Peter had articulated it so well, they knew that they had been guilty of something in their past. I imagine that they, some of them felt guilty. Some of them were filled with guilt. Some of them probably felt 
the same way that a, a German citizen would have felt after World War II, where so many German citizens under the Nazi regime had turned against their Jewish neighbors, and they sort of, sort of filed suit with this cultural injustice that was taking place all around them. And because most of their culture was operating in this way, it was probably difficult for them to see what they were doing wrong. And, and, then, and then when the, the Germans were attacked and the war was over and they were being accused of all these things, it sort of became clear to them that they had participated in this horrible injustice. And so in response, this crowd that day after Peter's speech, they said, what on earth can we do now? In light of the life that we have lived, in light of the decisions that we have made, in light of what we have done, what on earth can we do now? How do we move forward? And I think that there are a lot of us that have perhaps been in a moment like that, a moment of darkness in our life, a moment right on the back end of a really dumb decision, a decision where we think, man, how could God possibly love us after this? Or a series of decisions where we think, I have ruined my life so much, there is nothing that God can do to redeem my life. But I love these moments. I don't love going through them. I don't love seeing other people go through these moments. But what I've learned about some of the darkest moments that we experience in life is that those are the same moments where God shows up in the biggest way. It is in the darkness that God's light shines the brightest. I believe that. And I think that that's the moment that these men were experiencing or that crowd of people was, a, was experienced because in their heart, as soon as they understood that they were guilty of a horrific crime, they felt hopeless. What can we do? What hope do we have? We were part of the community of people that yelled, you know, screamed to crucify Jesus. But then Peter replied. In verse 38, he said, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children and to those far away all who have been called by the Lord our God. I love how we serve a God who when it seems like there is no way, he makes a way. This morning I had a really stressful morning because for whatever reason, every morning I wake up or every Sunday morning I get up at 5 a.m., I go to the office and I start doing my last-minute preparations and it's sort of this routine that I have every single Sunday but for whatever reason, my electronic key to the office wasn't working, and so I couldn't get in. And, uh, and so I wasn't quite panicking yet um, because, you know, I had a few other backup plans. And so I decided, well, I'm going to just drive back home. I'll print out my message, and then I'll start working on it at the house. And so I get home, and I remember that the night before, my son was pressing all the buttons on the printer. And we always tell him, don't touch the buttons on the printer for this specific reason. And so I couldn't figure out how to work the printer, and so I, th at that point I start panicking, and I start getting frustrated, and so I thought, okay, maybe I need to try this key fob again, which is this little electronic key that gets me into my office, and see if it works. So I drove back to the office, and I go up to the little magnetic register, and I press my fob against it, and it's not working, it's not lighting up, and I'm like standing at the door, and I start 
it's dark in this office space, and I've never, there's no one there ever on a Sunday morning when I'm there. But for some reason, I started pounding on the door and looking to see if anyone was walking the hallways of this door. And not to my surprise or to yours either, there was no one in this office building there. But there was a facilities person in the other office building to the, next to, the, to the side of me who saw me banging on the door. Now, she looked scared at first, which I understand, because I wasn't dressed up like I am now. But she comes out, and she opens the door, and she lets me in. And I think this is a perfect picture of how sometimes we are in, like, these desperate moments in life we're on our own. We could have never entered into a place of peace or got to where we were trying to go. But in God's goodness, he provides a way when there was no way. He provides a way for someone to open the door and to let us into this new life when on our own we did nothing to deserve that kind of life. And that's exactly what Peter did or what he explains in this brief explanation. He tells people how God has made a way even from some of the worst things that you've done in your life that God has still made a way. And the first thing that he says is to repent of your sins and to turn to God. When the Bible uses this word sin, it is an archery term that is describing missing the mark. And so when the Bible says that we are all sinners, what it's saying is that we have all missed the mark. We have all missed. We have all not lived up to God's perfect plan for our lives. And I love it because he makes it really simple, right? The process of salvation is simple. It's not complicated. But I also thought that getting healthy is also not a complicated process. Like if you go to the gym a few times a week and you eat healthy, chances are you're going to be healthy over the course of your life. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. And I think the same is true when we talk about the process of salvation and coming to Jesus. It is not a complicated process, but sometimes it can be a very difficult process. And so he says to repent of your sins, to turn to Jesus. And when he's talking about sin, he's talking about something that we have all participated in. I think sometimes when we think about sinners, it is a term that we have delegated only to people who have like gone to prison or people that we call terrorists, or people that have done these really horrific crimes. But most of us, many people in our culture, would never identify ourselves as sinners. But the way that the Bible describes it is that anyone is a sinner who has stepped outside of God's perfect plan for their life. One of the working definitions that we've used here at Eden is to say that sin is anything that we engage in that is outside of God's best for our life. Anything that we engage in that is outside of God's best for our life. And so I think a lot of us can look at our lives and say there have probably been things in our life that we have done that have been destructive habits for us. There have probably been, most of us can probably think of times where we have had evil thoughts toward LeBron James over the last four years. But we have all had these things in our life that have kept us from honoring and following God the way that he intends us to. And then he says to repent. And repent literally means to change your mind. It means that you are doing sort of an about face, an 180, 180 degree directional pivot away from sin toward God. He's saying change your mind, repent, turn from those things. And you have to understand that God is not asking you to turn from those habits in your life 
because he wants you to live a boring life. Right. Because I think a lot of times when we think about sin, it's like us having fun outside of church. But that's really not the hope. And that's not really what God is talking about. God is talking about protecting your life and using up every day that you have for the greatest value and not giving up something amazing for something that devalues your identity. He has a plan for your life. And I love how Peter communicates this simple plan of salvation Turn from your old life and turn to trust in God's promises, the promise of the good news. He describes it this way just uh, a, a few verses later in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. He says, now repent of your sins and turn to God that, so that your sins may be wiped away. Repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Imagine that these words would have been such a huge relief to that crowd that day. That they had admitted that they were guilty of a horrible crime. And Peter said, all you need to do to have your sins wiped away before God is to repent and to turn from these sins and you will be seen as clean before God. And that's it. That is the process of salvation. It is turning from sin and turning to Jesus. But then he also says to get baptized in the name of Jesus. And so the question then is, what is baptism? Baptism is at least two simple things. First, baptism is a picture of salvation. It is a symbol of what happens in the process of salvation where we die to ourselves. And we are being raised to walk in a brand new life in Jesus. We are leaving an old life behind and we are walking into this brand new life with Jesus. It is this beautiful symbolism. But it is also an outward expression of an inward change. And so this is a really important part of baptism is understanding that it is an outward expression of an inward change. And what that means is that salvation precedes baptism. That salvation has to come before this symbolism or this symbolism doesn't mean anything. My son is learning how to wash his hands and it's really, really cute, but he hasn't quite grasped the concept because what he does is he'll get the soap out and put it on his hands and he'll put his hands underneath the water and it'll run on him. But really, he, he's got that process down really well, but then he'll grab a piece of paper and he thinks that Drying your hands is grabbing the paper and crumpling it up and throwing it away. He hasn't understood the process of actually drying all of your hands and getting the water off. But I think sometimes baptism is viewed in that way, where you sort of go through the motion of baptism without the significance tied to it, without fully understanding the purpose for what the baptism is supposed to be. That baptism is a result of salvation is that it's an outward expression of what has already happened on the inside. And I feel like for many of us, this is sort of a testimony. I know it is for me, and there were a few people on our team who have a similar testimony. I was baptized in the Catholic Church as a baby. And then I was baptized when I was like seven years old. I, we started going to a Christian church. It wasn't a Catholic church. My parents were raised Catholic. We went to a Christian church, and and uh, my mom wanted me to get baptized. And so I remember the day of my baptism. We were standing in, I was standing in front of the entire church. 
And the pastor who was baptizing me went through sort of the, 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 the explanation of baptism, and I still didn't understand it. And I remember saying to them, I said, what does that mean in front of everyone? And they sort of pulled the mic away and whispered in my ear, just say yes. And so I said yes, and I was baptized, and they brought me back up, and, uh, and, and we celebrated. But the problem was is that I didn't understand what was happening in that process. And when we look at the model in the New Testament, baptism was only for people who made a decisive decision on their own to follow Jesus. And so it's an outward expression of an inward change. And so we ask then, why is baptism important at all? Because it doesn't save you. The Bible doesn't allow, we don't have this works-based idea where if we do these certain things, then we'll be in a right relationship with God. So baptism doesn't save us, but when we look at the Bible, God gives it such a significant part of the spiritual development process. It was one of two things that Jesus said we should always do in the church. The first was communion. He said you always as a church are to have a rhythm of partaking in communion, remembering the death and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. But then he said you always baptize. That is part of the rhythm of our church. And so what we understand is that baptism is a step of obedience. It is a step of obedience that God calls us into after we have become followers of Jesus. And I think it's a really strategic step of obedience because what it does more it doesn't do anything for God, but what it does for us is it helps us to understand our commitment to following Jesus. Imagine if there was someone in your life that you told that you love them, you told them you loved them, you told them that you cared for them, you told them that you wanted to be committed to them for the rest of your life. But one of the caveats of your relationship was that you didn't tell anybody. Like, hey, let's get married, let's have kids, let's live this wonderful life, but would it be cool if we didn't let anyone know on social media? Let's not make it Facebook official, let's keep it private. Wouldn't that be an awkward way of engaging in a relationship? And part of what that would do is it would show that your commitment to that person is limited for whatever reason. You're embarrassed or you're ashamed or you're concerned of what that your relationship will what that person will do to other people. And I think that on the front end of this relationship, that is what Jesus allows for baptism to address. Will you go public with your faith? There's been transformation that has taken place in your heart, but will you let other people know that you identify as a follower of Jesus? And I love how this is one of the very first steps of, of obedience that Jesus places in the path of the Christian life. Because there will be moments all throughout the course of your life as you engage on your faith journey where you will choose to follow Jesus or you will choose to do your own thing. Maybe at work there are these a group of people that are engaging in some illegal activity and chances are no one else is ever going to find out. And if you chose to participate, it would make you a very wealthy person or it would help your status in that organization. And that will be a moment for you to choose, will I follow Jesus, will I be bold with my faith, or will I follow the crowd? There will be so many moments all throughout the course of your life 
And I love how early on in the Christian life, Jesus says, I want you to take a stand. If you follow me, I want you to let everyone know. I want you to go public with your faith. And it really is a step of obedience. It really requires a degree of boldness in your life to take that step. Especially if you don't come from a family of believers. Because the interesting thing is that, and I think this makes a lot of sense, but when God is doing something in your heart that you didn't expect him to do, how it's not going to be easy for people in your life who have known you for years to see you make that bold step. Because that's never been a part of your rhythm. That's never been a part of your identity. But it will always require boldness to follow Jesus. But on the back end of that, there are some of us who have identified with Jesus in our heart. We have become followers of Jesus. But we've never been baptized. And that doesn't mean that you're not saved, but I do think that it limits your growth. In the same way as children are developing, if they skip one of these milestones, it will inhibit their development for the rest of their life. At some point, every child needs to hit these strategic, significant milestones early on so that their development takes place later on in life. And that's true with the Christian life. And baptism is one of those important things because it is such a good and natural thing for someone who is following Jesus to make that public. I remember I had some really great uh, dating advice from a friend when I was growing up. And he told me, he said, Daniel, hey, man, let me give you some dating advice. I'd never had a girlfriend. And he said, don't ever tell a girl that you love her. Don't ever tell a girl that you love her until you have to say it. And I thought, okay, he's the smartest person I know. I've, <laughs> I'm going to follow that advice. And so I remembered that that was like a thing in my life where I was never going to tell a girl that I love them until I couldn't help it anymore. And so I remember I was dating this girl who is now my wife. And I remember it had been like, it must have been a year into our relationship or longer. And it was like this serious relationship. And I had thought it a number of times. But I remember that I had like kept this thing. I don't know why I keep certain things, but I kept this, this one little rule. It's like, don't tell them you love them. Don't tell them you love them until you can't help it. And I remember it was at, you know, number month in our, to our relationship, and I finally accidentally said it. I said, I love you. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? I can't take it back. But the cool part of that experience was when I said it, I didn't want to stop saying it. I wanted to just keep saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, because it felt so right. It felt right for me to express ex externally what was already happening in my heart. And that is true with baptism. That if you are a follower of Jesus, the next step of obedience is to express your commitment to Jesus publicly and outwardly. God has called us into this step of obedience. It is not salvific, but it is so important in the development of our faith that early on we're going to decide that we're going to start taking bold steps for Jesus. We're going to make that part of our DNA when it comes to faith. I'm going to be a bold, progressor, Christian follower of Jesus throughout the course of my life. There are going to be challenges that come up, but I'm going to be bold. There are going to be people who make fun of me, but I'm going to be bold. There are going to be things in my life that cause me to make harder decisions because I want to follow Jesus, but I'm going to choose the path less traveled. 
He sets baptism as a marker for spiritual development. And so the question then is, who should we baptize? It's very simple. Any person that has ever made a commitment to follow Jesus, that has ever entered into a relationship with Jesus, you should be baptized. And I know that there are probably some of us in the room today that may have had a similar story as me where you were baptized before you ever understood what you were being baptized for. And this is not to take away from the significance of that experience because I know that that is such a meaningful thing and it was such a meaningful thing to my family and it was important. But when we look at the New Testament, the model that we see is that faith always precedes baptism because a baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. And so the challenge for us today is I want to invite you, if that is all your story, all your story, if you have ever, uh, if you've ever made a decision to follow Jesus, but you've never been baptized, in two weeks we are going to have our second baptism service here at Eden this year. And I want to invite you to consider if that is what God is calling you to do in this season of your life, to go public with your faith, to take that bold step of faith and to say, I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to let people know it. And I'm going to let the church post pictures of my baptism on social media. No, if you didn't want that, we wouldn't do it. But I love it. I love that at the very early stages of faith, God is challenging us to be bold believers to be bold about what he has called us into. And that is part of the wonderful journey of faith. Let's pray.